Well, today we are continuing in our sermon series entitled Spiritual Warfare. And you may have noticed the theme in some of the song selection this morning. In part one of our series, we learned how to correctly identify the enemy who is not other people, but rather is Satan and his dark forces. In part two, we learned about the danger of underestimating the enemy and overestimating ourselves. And then the necessity of relying solely upon God's mighty power rather than on our own. In part three, we then asked the very penetrating question of ourselves. Am I a soldier or a spectator? As we sang in the song about we are soldiers of the cross marching forward. And are we a part of that army? Am I a soldier or a spectator? And we learn that Jesus has not ever called his followers to be mere spectators, to be passively on the sidelines, but rather he has called each and every one of us to be a soldier and to fight the good fight of faith. And so now today we are going to begin to look at the spiritual armor that God has provided for us so that on that day of evil, when Satan's attacks do come, we are equipped to stand our ground. I would invite you to bow with me and let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you that it is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. And we thank you that it is here to speak to us today. And that by your spirit, would you open our minds, open our hearts to receive what you have for us. Speak through me, your servant. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was on a Sunday, like today, June 18th of 1815 that the battle-hardened 73,000-man French army commanded by Napoleon Bonaparte were marching through Belgium intent on recapturing the whole of mainland Europe. There they neared the city of Waterloo, and they were opposed by the 118,000-man 7th Coalition Army commanded by the Duke of Wellington. And then the all-out battle ensued that would determine the fate of Europe for the next century to come. The Battle of Waterloo, as it later became known, was so fierce that at the end of that day of fighting, there was a combined total of 66,000 casualties recorded at the end of one bloody day. The historian Archibald Naismith tells us that at one point during the battle, when the fight was at its most fierce, most hanging in the balance, an officer from a frontline unit galloped up to the Duke of Wellington. And he said, my captain says, we are being overrun. We need reinforcements quickly. To which the Duke replied simply and shortly, tell him to stand. So the officer galloped back to relay the message to his captain. A short time later, the same messenger galloped back with the same message. And again, Willington said simply, tell him to stand. Very soon, another officer came with the same desperate plea for the former messenger had been cut down by fire. To which Wellington replied to this officer, I have no help to send. Tell him to stand. And so the officer saluted and he replied, You will find us there, sir. And he returned to his unit. When the battle was finally over, and the forces of Wellington had ultimately prevailed over the forces of Bonaparte, 
The Duke did indeed find each one of those men of that frontline unit still faithfully at his post, each one to a man dead. For at their Duke's command, they had refused to retreat. They had stood their ground. And Wellington later said that their courage and sacrifice to stand firm had been instrumental in buying the time necessary to turn the tide of battle from near defeat to ultimate triumph in the end. Now likewise, as we've been talking about this morning already, as soldiers of Jesus Christ, we have also received a direct order from our commander to stand, to stand firm, knowing that even if the worst happens, and, and in the most extreme scenario, we should personally die as martyrs. That in the end, our victory in Jesus is assured, and that the defeat of our three-headed enemy of Satan, sin, and death is certain. Jesus has assured that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so this morning, I want you to turn with me once more to our key passage that we've already been reading and looking at many times, but there are many truths to glean from this passage on spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, and there in verse 10 we will begin our study. Now I'm going to read verses 10 and 11, and then we'll we'll skip over number uh, verse 12. We've looked at that in depth already, and then I'll read 13 and 14. And as we look again at this very familiar passage, I'm going to highlight something for you that I want you to take note of. And that is Paul's repeated use of the word stand in this passage. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Now, were you following along? How many times did Paul use the word stand in this passage? How many? Anyone want to shout it out? Was it once? Twice? Three times? Four times. That's right. Someone's pointing up. He used it four times. He says stand, and, he, and he, he reiterates it in different ways, saying stand firm, stand your ground. Four times he uses it. Now, in the original Greek in which Paul would have written this letter, the word used here for stand is histemi. Now, histemi, to a native Greek speaker, would have also taken note in reading this that Paul wrote it all four times in its intensified form. Now, I'm not going to give you a Greek grammar lesson here, but basically what that means is that when something was written in the Greek in its intensified form, it meant that this word or phrase was given the greatest emphasis possible. So uh, a rough equivalent for us in English would be that when an author writes something and he puts a word or a phrase in, let's say, all bold, all capital letters, or perhaps uh, underlines it in some way to highlight that in this passage, this is most important. This is what I want you to, to pay closest attention to. That would be a rough equivalent. Now, what's most interesting to me 
is that once we recognize that this word histemi or stand is, is in the most uh, important underlined form, it is here that we find Paul wants to say, don't miss standing firm. Because the armor of God, in contrast, this is what I always thought was most important in this passage, was it's all about the armor, right? Put on the armor. But the armor was not written in its intensified form, but rather a passive form. So now you're wondering, what does this little, you know, grammar lesson uh, have to mean? Well, let me explain. What it means and why it matters is because Paul's emphasis and his main point of this passage is not put on the armor, but rather on standing. You see, the armor is simply the equipment that we need so that we can obey God's word and his command that when the day of evil comes, we may be able to stand our ground. So the armor is secondary to the most important thing, which is that we stand. So, again, the armor is important, as well as its individual components, and we're going to look at those piece by piece in some sermons yet to come. But today, before we really get into all of those pieces, we're going to focus squarely on what it is that motivates the Christian to stand firm, no matter the cost. Because you see... A soldier, a soldier can have all of the necessary armor and all of the necessary equipment and even all of the necessary training to be able to stand firm. But without the underlying desire and courage required to motivate them to stand firm no matter what, then equipment alone is not enough. As a recent example of this, just a few months back, we mostly all will have watched some version of the news coverage as we saw the military forces of, of the NATO alliance that, that was in Afghanistan for many, many years began to withdraw and to say, we've done all that we can to equip the Afghan army, we've given them our training, we've given them our military equipment, and it was the very best. But once those supporting forces of, of principally the United States and, and, of course, Canada has been there for many years as well, withdrew, and it was up to the Afghan army to stand and fight against the Taliban alone, of course, there were many factors involved in this. But what it came down to at the end of the day was that even though they had the training and the numbers and the equipment, they were still routed in very short time by the Taliban. And we see here that, once again, training and equipment is not enough if there is not the underlying desire and courage to stand firm in the face of the enemy. You see, we too as Christians, as Canadian Christians, we don't lack for training. We don't lack for equipment or for resources. But those things alone won't make us stand firm in the day of evil. For as Jesus said, in the last days, many will fall away from the faith. So to ensure that you and I are not amongst those who will fall away, we need something more than just training or equipment. I want you to turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There in 1 Corinthians 15, we, we read that the Apostle Paul, the, the general theme of this chapter is that he is responding to the claim of some in the church at Corinth that Jesus did not physically rise from the dead. And so he makes the argument that if Jesus had not risen physically from the grave, then there would be no resurrection from the dead for us either. 
And so we would still be hopelessly lost in our sin, and therefore our serving and our suffering for Christ would be utterly pointless and useless if we don't have a future resurrection to look forward to. And so this is the context of the whole passage, and we're going to jump right into the middle of Paul's argument on this in 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 30 to 32. There Paul writes, And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, there's a lot in this passage that we could unpack, but the main theme is this. Paul is arguing, he's saying, that why would he face personal risk and danger at every turn if the dead are not raised, if the resurrection was not real, and if he was not confident that it was personally his in Christ Jesus. And so he goes so far as to say that if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus. Now, there's some debate amongst biblical scholars as to whether Paul fought literal, actual wild beasts in Ephesus, or whether he meant this metaphorically to refer to the angry mob of people, which we learned about last week in Acts 19. Now, we know that in Ephesus at that time, there was, in fact, an arena, an arena in which sometimes the use for it would be to have condemned criminals put in it to fight against wild beasts, wild animals, for the entertainment of the bloodthirsty crowd. And the usual result of such a fight would, of course, be that these men would be torn to pieces and devoured by the animals. However, most scholars think that it's unlikely that Paul was cast into the arena to fight wild animals simply because he was a Roman citizen and it was illegal for Roman citizens to be killed or, or put in the Colosseum in such a manner. Now, let's say that the, that the people just ignored that or Paul didn't insist upon his legal uh, rights as a Roman citizen and he was thrown in anyways. The further point would be that if this had happened and he had prevailed, Luke certainly would have recorded such a significant event in the book of Acts. And so the most likely explanation is that Paul was metaphorically comparing the behavior of that mob that we read about in Acts 19 to that of wild beasts as they came after Paul and his companions in that riot. Now, whatever the actual case is, and whether you know, Paul was uh, fighting wild beasts or just people behaving as wild beasts, he is not exaggerating this point, which is the very real and present danger that was placed upon his life. And not just in Ephesus, but elsewhere, throughout his travels, his life was constantly in danger. Another similar incident recorded in Acts chapter 14 and verses 19 and 20. And there we read, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. Now, this is just a few verses, and we're like, okay, whatever. He got stoned, and they thought he was dead, and dragged him out of the city, and he got out. Okay, no big deal. We carry on. But stop and think about that for a minute. 
Try to imagine you in that position. Try to imagine an angry mob coming after you, attacking you, pelting you with rocks until you are knocked unconscious, bloodied to the ground to the extent that they think you are dead and drag you out of the city. Think about that. Can you even begin to imagine such a thing happening to yourself? I know I have a hard time imagining it. But remember, Paul didn't have to imagine it. He lived through it. This happened to him in reality. Dragged out of the city, left for dead. And and as I read this account of this happening to Paul, I sometimes wonder if he thought of Stephen as this happened. Because you remember the story of Stephen? The first Christian martyr stoned to death at Paul's command. He was presiding over that crowd that day. Perhaps he thought of that. And yet, unlike Stephen, who we we read about, that Jesus stood and received him into glory. God wasn't finished with Paul yet. And so whether he was dead or next to dead, it really doesn't matter because God miraculously breathed life back into Paul's battered body. And we read he got back up. And not only did Paul get back up and think, wow, that was a close call. Maybe I should get out of here. Maybe I should head for the hills while I can. We read he gets back up and he walked right back into the same city that he had just been dragged out of, left for dead. Just imagine the looks on those men's faces who had literally just stoned him to death, or so they thought. It would have been like watching a a, a living ghost walk back before them. Wasn't he just dead? Didn't we just kill him? And here he is walking back into the city. And as credible as, as these things seem to us, remember, once more, these are actual events that Paul willingly endured, all for the sake of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the world. So again, back to Paul's argument. How could Paul willingly endure all of that and not back down? What so motivated him to stand firm and remain faithful to his mission in the face of such extreme opposition and personal danger? Well, we know there are a number of contributing factors, but Paul tells us his number one reason as we continue on in 1 Corinthians 15. And here in verse 52 we read, In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Then jumping ahead to the end of verse 54, Paul emphatically declares, Death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So here we see that Paul was so utterly certain that the Lord Jesus himself had been raised bodily, physically from the dead, and that therefore he, having placed his personal faith in Christ to save him, Paul believed that his own personal, physical, bodily resurrection from the dead was also an absolute certainty. And therefore, for this reason, his own physical death 
held absolutely no fear for Paul. None whatsoever. He says the sting of death has been removed. Elsewhere in Philippians chapter 1 and verses 20 to 24, Paul states this even more clearly to the church in Philippi when he writes to them, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Now, do you hear the utter certainty and the utter conviction in Paul's words? There is simply no room for doubt here. There is no ifs, maybes, or other qualifying words in his statement. His faith was so strong, so sure, that his own death would be nothing more to him than the doorway through which he must pass in order to enter into Jesus' glorious presence. And that is what he longed for. In fact, he says that would be far better than having to remain here in this body. But for your sakes, and for the sake of the mission, I will stay for now, recognizing that his death was ultimately in the Lord's hands. It wasn't for him to go seeking it out or determining the day of it. That was in the Lord's hands, and he would trust him that that day he longed for would come, but until that day, it would mean fruitful labor for him, knowing that none of it would be in vain. And so do you see how in Paul's example, in his life, do you see how not only is the sting of death and the fear of it removed, but that we can take this same faith and attitude and apply it to our own lives. For death is not only disarmed, but it actually becomes nothing more than a gateway, a doorway that we can face with hope and anticipation that when that day comes, we will be with Jesus right on the other side. And so what has death left as a hold over us? Now, well, some may read Paul's words here and say, well, he's becoming so heavenly-minded that he's of no earthly good. It's actually just the opposite. For while Paul longed, yes, he longed to depart and be with Jesus, he also knew that the timing was in the Lord's hand, and so until that day, his example to us was one of committed service. And so he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves, listen, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. So my friends, let me ask you this. When we hear Paul's conviction, when we hear his certainty, the bedrock of it being his faith in Jesus Christ and the resurrection and his own resurrection, the question for us is this. Do you and I, do we share Paul's conviction? Do we share in his certain faith in the resurrection of Christ and that because it happened, 
ours will happen as well. Are we certain of this? Do we share in Paul's conviction that death is a defeated foe? Are you fully convinced, like him, that by placing your personal faith in the risen Lord, that no matter what may happen to you on this earth, that your own future resurrection and ultimate victory in Christ is certain? Are you certain of this? Because here's the aside, or the caveat, if you will. If you're not quite sure, if you're not fully convinced, if you're not certain of this today, then this is right where you need to stop and this is right where you need to begin. For without having that certain faith in Christ as the bedrock for your soul and the motivation for your service, then trying to stand firm and let nothing move you is an utter impossibility. You won't be able to do it no matter how much armor or training you try to put on. Not even Paul himself could do it let alone have the audacity to instruct others to do the same. But Paul's testimony in both action and through the Spirit-inspired words that he wrote bear witness to the truth. That not only is this what God desires for each one of us, but that he has made the way possible that through faith, each one of his children, not just Paul, but each one of us can be motivated and equipped to stand firm immovable. And so no matter what fiery attack Satan may yet throw your way or mine, we can stand firm. Returning to Paul, he was chained within a cold, dark Roman dungeon, facing imminent death when he wrote these words to Timothy. He said, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. I want you to take note that Paul did not say that the Lord might bring me safely into his kingdom, but that the Lord will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And that day finally came when Paul received that deepest longing of his heart, that at the order of Caesar himself, at the hands of a Roman executioner, Paul stepped through that doorway of death, and he entered into Jesus' presence. And though Paul was not the first Christian martyr, that was Stephen, he was also not the last. For countless others have followed in his footsteps, and they too were willing to glorify Christ with their bodies, whether by their lives or by their death. One such man was named Flavius Justinus, who was born in the first century as a Roman citizen and showed remarkable intelligence from an early age. He sought to find life's true meaning in the philosophies of his day, but they all proved unfulfilling for Justin's hungry heart. At last, in the year A.D. 130, after a conversation with an old man who explained Christ to him, Justin believed and his life was transformed. A fire was suddenly kindled in my soul, he later said. I fell in love with the prophets and these men who had loved Christ. I reflected on all their words and found that this philosophy alone was true and profitable. That is how and why I became a philosopher, and I wish that everyone felt the same way as I. Justin began to write extensively, explaining all the truth was God's truth, now fully revealed through Christ. His masterful works and words were presented even to the emperor himself. However, some four years later, 
Justin defeated yet another popular philosopher in a public debate. And so finally, not being able to defeat his bold ideas through argument and logic, they waved the white flag, so to speak, and went with the edge of the sword. They arrested him and put him on trial. And when the Roman prefect commanded him to denounce Christ as the only true God by making a sacrifice to one of the other Roman gods, Justin simply replied, No one who is rightly minded turns from true belief to false. Then seeing that Justin would not yield, the prefect demanded once more he sacrifice to the Roman gods or die. But again Justin refused and said, If we are punished for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, we hope to be saved. At this, the Roman prefect became so furious that he ordered that Justin first be taken out and scourged before finally being beheaded. As word of Justin's faith and courage spread, the church was both shocked and inspired at how he had stood firm in his witness for Christ, even unto death. And for this, his fellow Christians gave him a new name, Justin Martyr making his name synonymous with Christian martyrdom ever since. Now, thankfully, God does not call all of us to be martyrs. But make no mistake that he does call all of us to be willing and prepared to be martyrs, if that is what he calls us to. For while our brothers and sisters of faith that live primarily in other communist or Muslim-majority nations, they face the possibility of, of martyrdom not as a theoretical concept, but as a very real one. And many of them have faced it. In fact, statistics show that there are more martyrs uh, uh, being created, in a sense, every single year, and last year being no exception, more now than there's ever been before in history. Brothers and sisters of faith, counting the cost even unto death. And so, while we here in Canada find this a foreign concept, yet God's word makes it clear that one day, whether long or short, that too will change as the trials and tribulations, the birth pains of this world, will continue to increase as Jesus' second coming draws ever closer. He is coming back. And God alone knows when that day will come and what will precede it, and what we have yet to face or endure. And so what is important for each one of us here today, in our own hearts and in our own minds, is to have the utter conviction and the certainty of both the resurrection of Christ and our own future resurrection through faith in him as the bedrock, the foundation for our souls. So that whatever the future yet holds, whatever we have yet to face, that we can face it, fully persuaded that death is a defeated foe, and that to live the faith without fear and with great courage is the only way. And so may we, like Paul, be so motivated by our desire to enter into Jesus' glorious presence that we resolve to use our lives, whether by life or by death, to Christ's glory. Amen. Lord Jesus, this call of your word, this challenge from your dear servant, the Apostle Paul, who you inspired so mightily 
to not only write these words for our benefit, but to live it out, to walk it out with such courage and fearlessness and boldness throughout his life. It stands as an example to each one of us. And so, Lord, though you have not called all of us to share in the same extreme burdens that he faced or the extreme animosity or opposition that he faced, Lord, the same foundational motivation that he had that enabled him to face it and to endure and to overcome is the same that you have available for each and every one of us today. That through faith in what you have done for us, Lord Jesus, that you face the cross, you face the worst that Satan and sin and death could throw your way. You drank that cup to the last drop and you went into the grave, but that you rose again physically, literally, bodily, from the dead, defeating and disarming every last foe. And we believe, and we believe that through faith in you and your resurrection, that our resurrection, spiritually, physically, bodily, in every possible sense, is also assured. And that death now has been disarmed. It is nothing more than a doorway through which we will one day step into your presence, lest you come for us first. And so, Father, I pray that we could share in the same boldness of Paul to live out this faith, steadfast, firm, immovable, knowing that whatever we do for you will never be in vain, and that you come and your reward is with you. And so, Father, may we stand firm for you in these days. Strengthen us that as your word goes out and as we live it out, as Paul did, that you would anoint it with your power and your blessing, that others could see and be inspired to follow you in faith as well. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.